Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. A little over a year ago, I asked you folks to submit questions that you would like to have sermons preached about. And uh, you folks really stepped up to the plate, and you submitted a whole bunch of questions. And now I realize I should have never asked you to submit questions for me to preach on. Uh, This is going to get me in all kinds of trouble. Well, last spring I preached on three of those questions. This, This series is called Frequently Asked Questions. And I remember in the spring, I dealt with three questions. One was, is God real, and how can we know that He's real? Number two, the second sermon was, how do we know that the God we worship is the right one? And then the third question I dealt with back in the spring is, what really happens when a person dies? Well, I've already dealt with those. Well, uh, beginning this morning, I'm going to deal with three more of these questions that you all submitted. And uh, so I I want us to look at the question we're going to deal with this morning. Here's the question, and this is taken verbatim from uh, what someone a little over a year ago turned in. Here is the question. Genesis 6 says something like, And God was sorry He created man. Now, how in the world can an omnipotent God be sorry for anything? All I know is I'm sorry that I asked you to submit this question to me. Uh, All right, so that's the question. That comes from Genesis chapter 6. So uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 6, the first eight verses, and let's read the full passage from which uh, this quote comes. Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Here it comes. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret, there it is again, I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, these eight verses are over my head. And it's a bit audacious to even try to wade out in their current because... Apart from your grace, I will drown in these eight verses. There are troubling circumstances 
and troubling statements in these eight verses, Lord, and they're beyond our ability to comprehend them. But it could also be said that if we took any eight verses anywhere from your word, they'd be deeper than I can swim. So Lord, by your grace, help us to navigate them a little bit so that we can get some understanding of what you're trying to say to us in these verses. What does it mean, Lord, that you regretted something, that you were sorry for something? Lord, help us in this matter. Help us with this question. For without your help, we're nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the question again. How can an omnipotent God, or a perfect God, or an all-knowing God, be sorry for anything? Now, before we actually delve into this question, I want us to look at how different translations translate Verse number 6 of chapter 6, that's the verse you remember which says, The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. So I I think sometimes it helps us to look at how uh, verses are translated by different translators. So let's take a look at that. In the King James Version, it says, And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. The uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is the Southern Baptist translation, says that the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. New American Standard Bible, which some of you read, says the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. English Standard Version, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth. New Living Translation So the Lord was sorry that He had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke His heart. And of course, the version that I read, that I usually read from the pulpit, New International Version, the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. So let's look at the problem that we're facing here in this this text. Uh, Basically, it's this. You would think that if God is really all-knowing, if He's really perfect so that He can't make mistakes, and if He's really all-powerful so that there's nothing He can't do, you would think that God would have known what was going to happen in Genesis chapter 6, that that humankind was going to be excessively, exceedingly sinful so that He could have chosen another path over which He would have had no regrets. I mean, you can put it another way. Isn't the assertion that God knows everything, omniscient, that He is all-powerful, that is, He can do anything, and that He is totally perfect, won't make mistakes, brought into question when we read in this context that God feels sorry over some decision He has made or changes His mind? After all, if God was really all-knowing, wouldn't He have known what was going to happen for an eternity in advance so that He could have chosen another path? Let me make a statement here about our concepts of God. Everybody in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, has some concept of what God must be, who God is, what kind of God God is. Now, Some of that picture of God we have in our minds, we get from Scripture, but not all of it. In fact, there's a good bit of our uh, picture of God 
that we don't get from Scripture at all. We get it from what people have told us throughout our lives, from what we have read from other sources, and, and also from asking a question. In order for God to be God, what must God be like? And we come up with certain answers to that question of, of what kind of God God must be in order for God to really be God. And we come up with these answers to that question, and we, we're, we're, we're born, we're, we're raised, and we come into adulthood with some of these, uh, uh, these pictures of how God must be. And sometimes those pictures of how, God, how we think God must be don't necessarily jive or agree with what we find in Scripture. And so we take what we believe about God that we have, we have uh, developed over our lives, and then we come to the Scriptures, and if we find a place in Scripture that doesn't agree with what we have pictured God to be, then we have a, uh, we have a problem. We either have to ditch our preconceived notion of what God must be and adopt what the Scripture says, or we have to take the Scripture and twist it a little bit to make it agree with what we have envisioned in our mind before we ever came to the Scriptures about what God must be. Let me give you an example. This is a a very extreme, and it's going to sound like a silly example, but this is a good example, I think, of what I'm talking about. Let's imagine that you, uh, from, from a child, you were born and raised to believe that God was purple. Right? That God is purple. I'm talking about the color purple. All of your life, you've been told, God is purple. Your parents told you, God is purple. You read in books that said, God is purple. The folks who uh, have most, the most influence in your life taught you that God is purple. So much so that by the time you're an adult, it is fixed in your mind that God must be purple. And then you go to the scriptures, and the scriptures say that God is spirit, and anyone who worships him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you go to other scriptures, it says that no one has seen God at any time. Only the Holy Spirit has made him known to us. And, and, and you look at that, and there's nowhere in scripture that it says, that says God is purple. God, the, the scriptures tell us that, that uh, uh, God is spirit, and then we know that God came through the person of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, and it doesn't say anything about him being purple. And so you're faced with a dilemma. Either you need to throw away the idea of God being purple and embrace that the Scriptures say that outside of coming in Jesus, God is spirit and colorless. Or you have to hang on to your preconceived notion that God is purple and try to push that purple God into every passage of scripture that seems to contradict. And so you, you come to the, clu- the conclusion that, hey, I know that God is purple because everybody I've ever known has told me God is purple. And here I come to the scriptures. The scriptures say God is spirit and everybody who worships him must worship him in spirit and truth. Evidently, the Holy Spirit must be purple tinted. Seems crazy, doesn't it? But that's exactly what we do outside of the fact of God being purple. For instance, let me give you uh, one that's a whole lot more uh, uh, applicable. You've been raised, as I have all my life, to believe that God is perfect. I believe God's perfect. I do. We've also been raised to believe that God is all-knowing. There's nothing God doesn't know. I believe that. 
We've been raised to believe that God is all-powerful, meaning there is nothing God can't do. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she was told by the angel that Jesus that she'd be, give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, she even said, rightly, with God, all things are possible. All right, so if God is all-perfect, as we believe He is, and all-knowing, as certainly He must be, and all-powerful, then... This perfect God, who can do anything and knows everything, could never do something that he would later regret. For a perfect God could not possibly do that. Right? But then, you come to Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And just as soon as as this concept, this picture of God in our minds has led us to conclude that God could not ever regret a decision he's made. We read in Genesis chapter 6, 6, where it says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And then again in verse 7, for I I will wipe them from the face of the earth, for I regret that I have made them. What are we to do? All of a sudden, the concept that we have been taught all of our lives about God comes in conflict with a very clear and plain reading of Scripture. In fact, verse 7 is a quote from God Himself saying, For I regret that I have made man on the earth. What are we to make of this? How can it be that a perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God could ever do something that he would later regret? This is the question that we're called upon to deal with this morning. There are times when your concept of God and my concept of God comes into conflict with the plain reading of Scripture. What do you do when that occurs? What are we to make of this idea that God regretted something that he did? Well, I want to give you four different viewpoints that different scholars have put forth regarding this idea of the Lord regretting something that he had done. And what you're going to notice here is that for all these four viewpoints, there are some pluses. They each has some real pluses behind them, but each of them also have some real weaknesses behind them as well. So let's look at these. First of all, there is uh, the idea that, that this verse is an anthropomorphism. The description of God, these folks say, regretting, the description of God regret, regretting is an anthropomorphism and not to be taken literally. Now, what is anthropomorphism? Because I know y'all mentioned that name around breakfast table this morning, and you probably talked about it a lot last night as you were eating out in the restaurant talking about anthropomorphism, right? And anthropomorphism is simply this. It is describing a non-human entity using human terms. Describing a non-human entity, for example, God, with human terms. We do that a lot. Uh, In fact, the Scriptures do that, I think, a lot when talking about God. We know that God is spirit, and technically speaking, a spirit doesn't normally have hands and arms and feet, and yet the Bible speaks of God's hand, the hand of God. The Bible speaks of, of God with stretched out arms. That's an anthropomorphism. The God speaks, uh, the Bible speaks, uh, even in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, 
and they realized they were naked. The Bible says this, says, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That implies God having legs and feet. And yet God is spirit. Could it be that these are are examples of describing a non-human entity, that is God, in human terms, that is having hands, arms, feet, and so forth? Certainly it could be, and that would be uh, a, a good rationalizing of this particular verse. Now there's one problem with it though. There's one problem with the idea of it being an anthropomorphism, and that is, that would mean that you could not take the scripture text at its face value. Because at its face value, this text says that God literally regretted something that he had done. He literally regretted a decision that he had made. Now, you say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, simply this. Here's my view on Scripture. And I've come to this over uh, the course of becoming an old man who's also a Christian. It's this. For me... I try to find an explanation for Scripture that allows me to take the Scripture text at its face value. And the reason for that for me is the Scripture text is preeminent over anything else. If I have a preconceived notion of what God ought to be, and then I go to the Scripture and I find a a text that is not in agreement with what I envision God to be, I have a choice. I can say, all right... uh, I like my preconceived notion better than the uh, plain reading of text, and so I want to accept I want to accept my preconceived notion of God over against the text. Well, what's the problem with that? Here's the problem with it. It lifts my own preconceived notion above the value of the scripture text itself. That is a problem. Now, if I see this text as an anthropomorphism, it is a way of trying to explain away a problem I see in the text. The problem is God regretted something that he had done. And so uh, I can change, I can look at it, well, that's, that's, a, that's an anthropomorphism, but, but what that means is I, I refuse to take the text at its face value. So yes, it's a good explanation of the text, but the downside is I don't, it doesn't allow me to take the text at its face value. And it means my preconception is of more value to me than the text itself. Well, let's look at another viewpoint. Another viewpoint says that God was sorry for the mistakes human beings were making, not for his creating human beings in the first place. All right? So this viewpoint says, look, God saw how wicked and sinful human beings have become and he was grieved over what they were doing. There's no doubt about that. Even the text says that. And he regretted what they were doing. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Certainly he regretted what human beings were doing. But this viewpoint goes to the point of saying that what what verse 6 really says is not that God regretted making human beings, but that he regretted what human beings were doing. Now, there's no doubt about it, folks. God regretted what those folks were doing. In fact, I don't know what sin you may have committed over the past week. I kind of know what mine are. Guess what? God is grieving over the sins you and I have committed over the past week. There's no doubt about that. But that's beside the point. Because when we look at the text, 
What the text literally says, it doesn't say that God regretted what human beings were doing, although certainly He did regret it. But what the text says is, God regretted that He had made human beings on the earth. Now, if, if when, when the writer of Genesis made that statement, if what he meant was that God regretted what human beings were doing, he could have said that quite easily. In fact, it would have taken fewer words. If he just said, and the Lord regretted what people were doing. But guess what? That's not what the text says. The text literally says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. So again, this viewpoint, the second viewpoint, has some advantages to it, but the downside of it is it doesn't allow us to take the text at face value. So there are disadvantages to this viewpoint as well. Are y'all with me? Hello? Don't you go to sleep on me. God will be grieved if you go to sleep on me. (laughs) Viewpoint number three. Viewpoint number three says God knows everything in the future, And therefore, he knew for an eternity that he would regret creating human beings and that there's no problem with that. Now, this viewpoint suggests that either because God predetermined everything, he knew what would happen, or even if he didn't predetermine everything, he foreknew everything that would happen. Therefore, either way, for an eternity in the past, before Genesis 6, he knew what human beings would do, and he knew for an eternity in the past that he would regret having made them. Well, I'll tell you what that does do, that viewpoint. It does allow us to take the text at face value because it allows us to believe what it says when it says, and the Lord regretted having made human beings on the earth. But there's a part of it that doesn't make sense to me. Because if God is perfect so that he doesn't make mistakes as well as all-knowing so that he knows everything in the future, and all-powerful so that there's nothing he can't do, including always doing the right thing, then for an eternity in the past, instead of doing something in the future that he knew, either because he foreknew or he foreordained, that it would be regretful and then regret it, if he was perfect, in an eternity in the past, he would look ahead and he would make sure that what he decided to do and what he did in real time would not be something that he would regret. Why would a perfect God, who had all eternity to think about this, in advance decide to do something that he would regret? Can, is it possible for a perfect God to do such a thing? So that viewpoint would allow us to take the Scripture at face value, but it would not allow us to reconcile the acts of a perfect God with an act later on that this perfect God would regret having done. So let's look at viewpoint number four. So far we looked at three viewpoints. They had pluses and they had minuses. Viewpoint number four says that God did not know with certainty that humanity would grieve him the way it did. That God did not know with certainty exactly what humanity would do. He knew it was possible that they would be this excessively sinful, but he did not know it with certainty. And therefore, when it did happen, he truly regretted having made human beings on the earth. 
Now, already you can see a potential problem with this view. It's the, it, 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 it projects an apparent lack of knowledge on the part of God. There's something, according to this view, that God doesn't know in the future. There's a writer that I like reading. His name is Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd, this is actually the view that he proposes and he is a proponent of. He says that when God created everything, in terms of the future, he said that the future is divided up into two categories. On one hand, there are those things that God has predetermined to occur, and because God predetermined them to occur, they will certainly occur. There's no way they won't occur because God has predetermined that they would happen. But on the other hand, Boyd says that there are things that God has left open in the future. And the fact that He's left them open means that He's allowed our free will in part, to dictate the outcome of those things. And so, God lays out certain circumstances, and every human being who faces those circumstances has a set of options. And Boyd says that God knows what every one of those options are. He also knows, God knows, what His response would be to whatever the option is that we choose. And then, Boyd says, to whatever response God makes, to whatever option we take, there are another set of options, and God knows all of those all the way out to a big old spider web of infinity. But he says what God does not know is, in some cases, the actual choice among the options that we will make until we have made them. Boyd says that it's not that God doesn't know the future. He knows the future in the open part as possibilities, But he says there are things that are unknowable, and the things that are unknowable are the things God doesn't know. And among those things that are open, he says, are the choices of humankind, the excessive sinful choices of humankind in Genesis chapter 6. And therefore, God regretted that he had made man on the earth. It does allow us to take the text at its face value, but the problem is, as all these have a downside, the problem here is that uh, it it leaves God appearing not to know certain things in the future. Now, there are places in Scripture, other places in Scripture, that uh, seem to support this. There's a place in Isaiah chapter 5 where Isaiah likens God to a vineyard keeper, and he says the vineyard keeper planted a garden, and he tilled the garden, and he dressed the garden, and he took care of the garden, and he expected the garden, the vineyard, to produce grapes. And when it didn't, he said, what am I to do with my vineyard that I have not already done with it? For I expected grapes, and it yielded weeds." How can God expect one thing and then something else occur unless there's some part of the future that is open that he may not know with certainty what's going to happen? This is Boyd's contention. So I've given you four views on this thing. Each of the four views have pluses and each of the four views have minuses. And so I'm sorry, folks. I know somebody here asked that question. But I'm not going to answer the question for you today. And so it leads me to come down to what I think the main point of this passage is. 
It's not that the issue of whether or not God can truly regret something He's done is not important. It is. But the importance of that question fades into irrelevance compared to the main point of this passage, which is simply this. God was grieved when they sinned, and God is grieved when we sin. Whether or not he regrets it is up for debate. I suggest that he literally can. Most people suggest that he can't. But either way, it makes not a hill of beans. But what does make a hill of beans is this. You and I are sinners. We will commit sins. And every time we do, we make God weep. You want an anthropomorphism? There it is. Sometime over the past week, you and I brought tears to the eyes of God. And those tears, way back a couple of thousand years ago, those tears in the eyes of God over the sinfulness of people prompted Him to send His Son to an ISIS-level execution. Dying in our place so that we could live. I don't know what the truth is about whether God can regret something that He did. But I know this. God grieves when we sin. And it prompted Him to send His Son to die for us. To deal with it. That I know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I told you, you already knew it, but I told you I couldn't swim in those waters. Way over my head. There's so much, even in these eight verses of the opening of Genesis 6, that will always be beyond our ability to understand let alone explain parts of it that are just too deep for us to fathom. But the most important parts, you have made sure they stayed close enough to the surface that we actually can grab hold of them and understand them. Because Lord, I am absolutely certain that the most important point of Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is this, that it grieves you deeply when we sin. So much does it grieve you that you sent your son to die for us. God, I pray that in this room today, during this invitation, that someone who has yet to make the decision to follow Christ will come and give their lives to Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.